You may recall from last week's message that uh, we did not complete the entirety of this section. You'll remember perhaps that Paul is giving an address to the Ephesian elders, the men whom he has trained for gospel ministry, and he is now the last, for the last time speaking to them and challenging them. We considered from verse 17 all the way down through verse 27 last week. And so I'd like for us to pick up our reading in verse 28, read through the end of the chapter, after which we will ask for God's help. So again, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. Hear the word of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Father, we pray that in these moments that we have together to consider your word, that the Holy Spirit would be the preacher of the hour, that we would understand in a new way this text of scripture, and most of all, that your Holy Spirit would preach the truths of it to our hearts. We offer these requests in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, many of you, of course, all all of you probably know the name George Washington, right? The the quote-unquote father of our nation, who served as the general of the Continental Armies when they were overthrowing the powers of Britain, and then was subsequently elected to serve as the first president of these United States of America. And then Upon the, the nearing of the end of his first term, he was, he was asked, uh, he was begged, in fact, to, to serve a second term, which he did. But as the, the end of that second term came, he decided it was not good for the country uh, for him to go into a third term. It, it, he didn't want to propagate an ongoing uh, presidency that would resemble a monarchy. And so, in deference to the greater good, he decided that two terms was enough. And in fact, that was a a tradition, a practice that was observed for many, many years to come. It was not in the Constitution, but was still observed by the subsequent um, holders of that office. But near the end of his second term, he wrote a lengthy and powerful uh, letter that was then published all around the country. It was a letter of farewell. It was a letter of admonition. It was a letter of warning. It was a letter uh, that, that really inspired the nation. And so this letter of encouragement and inspiration went down in history as one of the great parting addresses. 
of an American president. Over the course of American history, 44 men have served 45 presidencies, but 44 men have served the United States as the president. Not every one of them gave a formal farewell address. Some of them did. Of course, it's obvious that, that's, that uh, eight of the 43 presidents died in office. They didn't have a chance to you know, anticipate their departure and give a parting address. But, but even many who did uh, come to the completion of their term did not do a formal parting address. Um, of the 35 who lived to the 36 who lived to the end of their final term, uh, 10 of them delivered a formal farewell address. George Washington, who we already mentioned, Andrew Jackson, Andrew Johnson, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama delivered parting addresses, farewell addresses, as, as departing statesmen. And in fact, when, when someone is in that position, they're not looking for re-election, there's a, a different tone to the address that they give when they are uh, leaving, when they are departing office. Well, we have in front of us in this text of Scripture the departing speech, the farewell address of perhaps the greatest Christian statesman to ever live. I, I would dare say that aside from Jesus Christ himself, no human has had the impact on Christianity that, that the Apostle Paul did. Paul has a chance for the last time to speak to his, his preacher boys, his, his seminary students, those whom he had taught. And you'll remember those that he had so effectively taught that, that Luke records for us that what? The entire province, the entire region of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord because of what was happening in Ephesus. Well, Paul makes his way back. We talked about this last week. And he is now about a day's journey away from Ephesus. So he takes this opportunity to send a messenger to call to himself the Ephesian elders. And so if they're in Miletus, we see in verse 17, he sends to Ephesus and the elders of the church come. Now we started considering this address that he gives to the Ephesian elders last week. And we learned from our time together that, that our ministry, your ministry, my ministry can be effective as it continues in others whom we have impacted. Our ministry can be effective as it continues in others whom we've impacted. As we think about this text of Scripture, we are talking about a man who had an impact on other people. And in fact, that impact would go on to coming generations. It was so profound, it was so powerful. And it's incumbent upon us to ask ourselves, what kind of an impact are we leaving on the future? The future that we will never see, the future that we will never directly touch, but that we can touch through those whom we influence. And so there are a great number of lessons that we can learn from Paul's address to those whom he influenced, who will in turn influence others. Last week, we realize that you and I can have effective ministry by exemplary character. And this is what Paul cites in verses 18 through 26. You remember this from last week, that Paul actually cites his own example. 
He talks about the reality that he was able to impact these men because he, he says, you, you know how I live. You've seen me live. He cites specifically humility in verse 19. And then again in verse 19, uh, the reality that he was willing to endure hardship as an example. And then his daily discipleship in verse 20 and 21. That, that through these avenues, he was able to leave an impact, not just a, a, a verbal influence on them, not just this is how you should do it, but actually showing them how to do ministry. This is the way people are trained in ministry, not just by telling them how it's done, not just by requiring them to read it in the book, but allowing people to come alongside of us and do ministry together. This is the patience of allowing people to come alongside of us, to observe us in our strengths and our weaknesses, in our good times and in our bad times, and watch how we do ministry. I may have told you the story before that um, one of my first crisis counseling situations came as I was an assistant pastor, of course, when the senior pastor was out of town. That's always when tragedies happen. Right? People will die, uh, crisis situations will erupt when you're the assistant pastor and the senior pastor's out of town. Right? So my first foray into you know, crisis counseling uh, took place when the senior pastor was out of town. So I get this phone call from uh, an, in, an in-law that says, I think this couple, names the couple in our church, is like coming to blows. And so I, you know, their, their place that they live was only about a mile. So I zip over there. I can't get them to answer the phone. I knock on the door. The door opens and, you know, white as a sheet. Clearly things were not going well in that household, right? And so what do I do? I mean, I'm a brand new pastor like a year in. And how do I deal with the situation of this family that's, that's blowing up over alleged infidelity? The only way I knew how to handle it was how I had seen my dad handle it. When I was a preacher's kid and I was in the car and he gets the phone call that this family's in meltdown and I, as a young person, probably upper elementary, junior high, sat there and watched my dad deal with the situation. You don't read that stuff in a book. You, you don't just have somebody tell you, here's how you handle it. You, you watch it unfold. So, so Paul is appealing to these, these young seminary students, these guys whom he has trained and said, you know how to minister because you watched me minister. And I wonder for each of us, how do we do that? How willing are we to take a lot others along with us? Let them see us in ministry. Let them actually see sometimes our failures in ministry and learn from those. Paul cites, first of all, his character. And you and I can have an influence on other people when we let that happen. When we demonstrate faithfulness, when we demonstrate the fidelity to serving God. But then Paul goes on and he reminds us that you and I can have an effective ministry by diligently teaching the word. It is by what we show, but it is also by sowing God's word into people's lives. And we reminded ourselves last week that as we, as Paul did that, we can do that as well. This imperative in ministry 
uh, for each of us individually and for us as a church as a whole to be sowing in other people's lives. This passage really is a, a classic reminder of our theme for this year, right? Our theme is win one, lead one, follow one, send one. We are to be constantly on the lookout for that one that God is going to put in our path, that God is going to put in our sphere of influence that we can win to Christ, that we can share the gospel with, see their life transformed, see them made new in Christ, and, and be one to, one to the Savior. But it's not just enough to stop there. It's not just enough to do evangelism, to see someone make a profession of faith. Now it is our responsibility to lead someone, to, to bring them along to follow after you. Who are you leading? Who are you discipling? Who are you mentoring? Clearly, Paul has before him an audience of people who he himself had poured into. But it's important that as we go on for Christ, we have those people that we can look to as our examples, as our mentors. Who, who is pouring into your life? We've said before, this is this image of, of a hand up and a hand behind right? We're pulling other people along with us, but we're also relying on other people who have gone before us. So this passage reminds us of all this and that we can have an effective ministry as we teach others the word. Well, this morning we jump in at verse 28. You see, it's not enough for us just to have learned from others. It's not just enough for us to have an impact on our own generation. We want to have an impact that lasts through God's grace. You've seen the relay race, right? You've seen the, the racers in this relay race who, who carry that baton and they, and they make a run and as they get to that, that straightaway, the other runner ahead of them starts and puts out the baton. Have you ever seen them mess up the handoff? Oh my goodness, you lost the race. I mean, just those few seconds that you learn, that you lose with this dropped baton, will cost you the race more than likely. You ever seen a bad handoff? See how demoralizing that is? I mean, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about handing off the baton of faith, handing it solidly to the next generation who will then carry it forward. And as we do that, we can have an impact on, on generations to come by getting a good handoff. So it's not enough that Paul said, hey, I sowed into you. I taught you. I showed you how to minister. Now Paul's challenge is to them to carry that forward, to, to take hold of the baton and to advance that baton down the track. You and I can have a, an effective ministry through faithful followers who will emulate us. If you and I are to have an effective ministry that continues in others, we have to pour into those faithful followers, but those followers then have to emulate what they've learned. They have to take that baton of faith. And so Paul gives them specific challenges in verses 28 and following about faithfully emulating what he has taught them. We are to challenge those behind us to guard themselves. Notice what he says in verse 28. Therefore, take heed to what? Take heed to... Where does he start in verse 28? Take heed to yourselves. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul is challenging the pastors of the church. And his appeal does not start with their church work. It starts with their own heart. If we're going to be effective, if we're going to encourage faithful followers, we have to guard our own hearts. 
the great Prince of Preachers, who was Charles Spurgeon, who was supremely committed to training young men for ministry, ha had himself a, a preacher's school housed in his church, would, would regularly challenge those men. And many of those challenges are recorded for us. Some things that, that Spurgeon said to his preacher boys, Beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our, our own worst enemies within us. And then in another place, Spurgeon says this, You cannot preach conviction of sin unless you have suffered it. You cannot preach repentance unless you have practiced it. You cannot preach faith unless you have exercised it. True preaching is an artesian. It wells up from the great depths of the soul. If Christ has not made a well within us, there will be no outflow from us. One of my professors used to summarize this quote by saying, you preach from the overflow. And so the challenge that Spurgeon gave his preacher boys, the challenge that Paul gives his young seminary students is to take heed to yourself. Watch your own heart. The Proverbs says it this way, guard your heart for out of it are the issues of life. If you want to have an impact on others, you have to yourself guard your heart. You have to tend carefully the garden of your relationship with God. If you're like me, you're a doer. You want to do stuff, right? But let us never let our doing, our ministry, tempt us to be so busy that we fail in our own relationship with God. This is a temptation that ministers have, that pastors have, that college students have. We're so busy engaging in ministry that we fail to care for our own relationship with God. And so the Apostle Paul starts off with his challenges to those that we're going to follow after him. Take heed to yourself. Watch out. There's temptations around you. There are things that will dissuade you. There are things that will distract you. Watch your own heart. But then from there, he also challenges his followers, as we are to challenge followers to guard the church. And this is where he goes then in verse 28. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock amongst you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All right, now, this is review. If, if, if you've taken our new members class, you have heard this before. All right, this is one of those passages where we see the terms that are used in reference to the pastoral office used interchangeably. Do you remember this? What are the three primary terms that are used in the New Testament to refer to that office? What are they? Tell me. Bishop. Okay, bishop. Okay, and that is... Okay, so, so bishop, let's, let's... Yeah, good, we'll be there a second. So bishop is what? It's also translated as... No. Overseer, right? Epi is the preposition over, and skapos is from the word to see, one who sees. All right, so the episkopos, oh, we get an English word from that. What's it? Episcopal, right? Episcopal, Episcopalian, right? That's where that word comes from. It comes straight out of the Greek. So it is literally overseer. The old King James likes the term bishop. 
New King James sometimes uses it, sometimes uses overseer. All right, so that's, that's the overseer. And then you said the other one was what? Shepherd. Shepherd, right? And that's the word that we often see show up as what? Pastor. That is exactly what it is. And in some languages, it's the same word. Pastor is pastor. Uh, the, the guy out in the field who's watching sheep is the same as the guy who preaches from behind the pulpit. All right? So, so those are two. There's a third one. You remember the third one? Elder. Very good. Very good. And that Greek word actually comes over into English, too, in the denomination Presbyterian. The word is presbyteros, right? So there's these three terms, elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd. We actually see all three of these in this text. Remember this? Verse 17, right? All the way back to the beginning of the text. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for whom? The elders, there you go, the, the, the presbyteros, the elders of the church. And then we see in verse 28, another one of the titles used. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock amongst the which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers, right? That's the same word that you'll sometimes see show up in the Old King James as bishop. But let's go back in the verse, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, right? What is that a reference to? Shepherding, right? Over the which um, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, now this is actually the verb, to pastor, right? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So this is one of those um, passages in which we see these terms used uh, interchangeably. Now, verse 28, one other thing I want you to note in here that's... that's of interest. Take heed yourselves to all the flock amongst the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, watch, uh, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Are you looking at verse 28? Do you remember learning in high school English that every pronoun has to have an antecedent? You remember that? Oh, I know this is painful because we're like flashbacks from high school English. Right? Every pronoun is supposed to have an antecedent. What is the antecedent in verse 28, which he purchased with his own blood? What's, the, what's that pronoun referring back to? Who is that ref pronoun referring back to? His own son. I'm sorry? His own son. So, which he, he, okay, so to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood... What is his referring back to? I'm sorry? Is Jesus in the text? I don't see Jesus in my text. Do you? This says to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. Okay. Well, I'll get to that translation in just a minute. That Old King James? No, it's not Old King James. Okay. If you've got the New King James in front of you, Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased, he purchased with his own blood. What do those pronouns refer back to? God. They refer back to God. What would you expect to be there, Miles? Jesus, right? You would expect that. But that's actually not in the text. So when his own blood is referred to, what is this an affirmation of? Are you with me? The deity of Christ. It's subtle sometimes. So let me actually read to you the way the Jehovah's Witness Bible. 
because this is a problem, right, for them. So let me actually read it to you from the Jehovah's Witness retranslation of it. They deny that Christ is God in the same sense as the Father, so they modify the verse, which he purchased with the blood of his own son, which is actually not in the text. Because if it reads as it reads in the text, that creates a problem. All right, so interesting. There's just one of those subtle little, you know, touching on the deity of Christ. And uh, I think there might be one other translation that does that as well uh, for clarity. Um, but it's actually his own uh, in, in the original language. All right, so the church has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It, it is a redeemed people that have been purchased through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is God himself in the flesh. And so as Paul challenges those who are overseeing the church, those who are shepherding the church, he challenges them to take heed not only to themselves, but to also this flock because it is a purchased flock. We see furthermore that there are two fronts that they are to guard. Verse 29 is the first one, reminding us that believers uh, should be on guard against threats to the church from inside, or excuse me, from outside first in verse 29. From, for I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Do you see another allusion here to pastor, to shepherd? He's saying, I know that there are those who will come in from the outside that wish to tear apart the flock. And so just like a shepherd in the ancient world would put himself at the gate of the sheepfold in order to guard those sheep, Paul is saying that the pastor has a responsibility to guard against threats from the outside. It's a dangerous world that we live in. We don't like to speak in these terms, but the fact is that the world is theologically a dangerous place. In respect to the temptations of sin, the world is a dangerous place. Now, the, the world uh, dismisses the idea that, that other teachings are actually dangerous. Well, how narrow-minded. But Paul says, no, there are threats, and they're like wolves. Those that would teach falsehood are like wolves that would tear apart the flock. It is imperative that we be on guard against threats to the gospel, against threats to pure doctrine, against threats to accurate teaching about how we should live out the gospel, these attacks from the world. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on, right, in verse 30, that believers should be on guard against threats to the church from the inside. Also from among you, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not to cease to warn everyone. The word warn here is, is, is admonish. I warned you for three years while I ministered that there were dangers from without and there are dangers from within. It is an insidious idea that just because someone names the name of Jesus... Just because someone claims to be speaking on behalf of God, that they're okay. That we should just swallow up what they're saying. Well, we should just all get along. If we, if we all claim Jesus, no, no, Paul actually says that from within the church, false teaching will rise up. 
be on guard. Well, what a challenge for all of us. Falsehood has not gone away. False teaching is not a, a, a passe, no longer a threat. And so he says he warns them night and day with teachings. And then verse 32, I commend you, brethren, to God and to the word of his grace who is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. Doctrinal vigilance is imperative. And it's not just for preachers. Every one of us should be on guard to learn truth, to be discerning about the teaching that would come, even from our very own pulpit. Do you analyze? Do you take the scripture and, and dig into it to determine what you are being taught is true, whether what you're being taught is true? Are we all vigilant about truth? I will have to say that I appreciate that at this church we have a number of people who are, who are dedicated to truth, who are interested in making sure that we cut it straight, that we teach the Word of God accurately. That is, that is good as a congregation. It is good as a preacher. It is an important reminder that Paul gives to those who are ministering. And every one of us are responsible to keep the truth, to guard it carefully. And so the challenge that is here is to have a faithful ministry because others will follow after us. They'll follow after our, our activity of life. They will follow after our doctrine. Let's be faithful to truth. We learn one final lesson here in verses 33 and following, and that is that you and I can have an effective ministry through faithful sacrifice. Watch what Paul says in verse 33. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. So Paul cites his own example as being willing to provide, to make his own way as a tent maker so that he would not be accused of being in this for the money, right? There were those who were traveling the world at the time who were religious teachers whose motivation was to fleece God's people not to care for the flock. Well, I'm glad we don't have that problem anymore. Do we have that problem? I mean, if, if you're wondering whether we have that problem, just turn on TBN. No, don't turn it on. But, but you could. Just watch TBN for you know, an hour or two. And you would recognize that there are many people who purport to speak on behalf of God whose motivation is to rake in the money. So Paul says, look, I want you to look at my own example. I provided my own way so that no one would accuse me, so that no one would think that I have, I've been after gold or silver. And in fact, he said, I'm not guilty of covetousness in verse 33. I've shown you an example, verse 35, by laboring and then to support the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus. Now, this is interesting because this is one of those quotes that Paul uh, attributes to Jesus that's not recorded anywhere in the Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Be selfless. Be giving. Be generous. Be hospitable. This is the challenge that he gives to those who want to be involved in ministry. 
As you want to minister to other people, don't make it about you, which circles all the way back to the citation of Paul's own humility that he mentioned at the outset with his example. Well, as I look at this passage, I am reminded of our theme for the year. And I'm reminded of a verse that I mentioned last week, 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul writes his own protege in the faith. He says, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit those to faithful men. It's this handing of the baton. So Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor that he has trained, he says, The things that you've heard from me, you've seen amongst many witnesses, you take those things and you commit them to faithful men. But it doesn't stop there who will be able to teach others also. This is the exact imagery that we're trying to portray with our annual theme of win one, lead one, follow one, send one. Are we actively trying to pour the gospel into other people who are not yet believers? Are we endeavoring to win that one that Christ uh, is bringing to himself? Who is, who is your one? Who is the one that, that you are thinking about and praying about? You know, we had this little hiatus where we weren't meeting regularly. Who, who were you thinking about that you are, are going to target with the gospel, that you are going to build a relationship with? Don't forget about the importance of sharing the gospel with other people. You and I are called on to win someone, even if it's just one. And then reproduce ourselves in that person. Lead that person. Disciple that person. Bring them on for Christ. And, and maybe, maybe that person that you're praying for hasn't accepted Christ as Savior yet, but there's, there's someone who is a young believer who you can pour yourself into. Who is that one that you can disciple, that you can train, that you can lead? You say, well, I don't know that I'm fully there yet. I, I, I'm not adequate to do that. Well, none of us really are. And part of what we do is we learn by training others, but we also learn by by. Uh, learning from that one who's a mentor to us. So who's your mentor? Who is your spiritual influence? Who is the one that is encouraging you and helping you? And you can go to with questions and prayer requests and things that you're studying in God's Word. Are you, are you praying and working to win one and to lead one, but also to, to follow one? And then what a passage that reminds us that if we do this, if we participate in this discipleship philosophy, what we will do then is train others for ministry. And that's what the last leg of this um, four-part four uh, emphasis this year is, to send one. It is our prayer that within the next decade, our church will send someone into active gospel ministry, a, a pastor or a missionary uh, someone who is, is taking the gospel to the front lines. Someone who is actively engaged in ministry that our church has trained and, and poured ourselves into. That we are sending one, at least one, within the next decade. So that's the prayer of our church. Because, because part of the church's discipleship mission is preparing that next generation that will continue this pattern on. Just like Paul challenges Timothy, just like Paul challenges those here in Acts 20 that he has trained, that we are preparing the next generation of ministers who will go out. And it's, it's true broadly that, that all of us should be trying to, to uh, put people in ministry, but it's true really in the kind of the ecclesiastical sense, in the, in the church sense. Like who are the next generation of preachers? 
Who are the next generation of Christian ministers? And are we working actively to put them in ministry? You know, many of the Christian colleges are bemoaning the fact that their enrollment is growing, going down, that it's dropping, that, that especially within their ministerial student uh, body, that the numbers are rapidly diminishing. You'll remember that when Dr. McAllister was here some months ago, he emphasized and really read us some, some jarring statistics about the need that exists for Christian ministry. And I would dare say it's not the fault of the colleges. It's the fault of the local churches who are not participating in this discipleship philosophy because, because if they're doing this kind of discipleship, there are going to be those that are raised up that God uses in a special way in ministry. And so it's true in a broad sense, but it's specifically true of raising up the next generation of teachers and missionaries and pastors and theologians and seminary teachers. Those who will dedicate themselves in a unique way to the charge of discipleship. Not only do we individually want to throw a rock in the pond that will have ripples that will go out and continue to reverberate. We want that individually. We want that for our own lives. We also want that as a church. Such that, such that if, if one day North Hills Baptist ceases to exist, it still has an influence through those that we have trained, discipled, challenged to carry forward the baton of faith. My ministry, your ministry, can be effective as it continues in others whom you have impacted. Lord, help us to have an effective ministry. Help us to have it in our own lifetime, but Lord, may it not stop there. May we be people who are supremely committed to carrying forward the message of Jesus Christ to other people, who we will then lead, who we will then disciple, who will then go with the message of the gospel.